Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. Remember this. Just remember, love trumps hate. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge. Because you'd be in jail. Don't boo. Boo. It is so nice to hear you cheering for what I just said. Thank you. The sounds and slogans from the 2016 campaigns, whether you agree with them or not, the people who run for president have a vision, and they spend months on the campaign trail trying to sell that vision to voters. It's where messages are honed and where voters turn into supporters. In 2008, the closing rally before the election was really memorable for me. That's Stephanie Cutter. She worked on the Obama campaigns of 2008 and 2012. The size of the crowds, the look on people's faces, the energy of the moment. We were on the brink of making history. If you're willing to fight with me, I know your voice will matter. When you work on campaigns, It's hard to take a moment and reflect on what it is that you do or what you're working for. But that moment, I really understood what we had been working so hard for, what I had been spent my career doing, because I did think we were moving the country in a a different direction and making history. And um, that was one of the moments that I remember thinking to myself, looking up at the sky and talking to my grandparents and everybody else that has passed before us and saying, you know, Grandma, I hope you can see this. We know we can bring this country back. I'm Mitt Romney. I believe in America. And I'm running for president of the United States. The seminal moment that I really look back on the 2012 campaign and think, wow, that was like a big deal, or that's what campaigns are all about, was the actual kickoff event in New Hampshire, up on a farm. That's Matt Rhodes. He ran Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign. And it was a big public event at the Scammons farm. And it was like a no-brainer event that we would replicate over and over. We would replicate in all these battleground states when we became the presumptive nominee. And what's true right here in New Hampshire, on this farm, though each of us has chosen to walk a different path in life, we are united by one great overwhelming passion. We love America. We believe in America. It's what campaigns are all about, and it's what is not happening right now. Today, Seven months out from a general election, things sound a lot different. You have a presumptive nominee who's sitting in their living room, probably taping a regional TV interview right now. Not doing any kind of retail politics 
and not doing any kind of message driven event in one of these key battleground states that they need to go out and lay out their case for why they should be the next president of the United States. It's all so quiet. President Trump, who thrives on rallies, is instead hosting nightly coronavirus briefings from the White House. You know, I'm a cheerleader for the country. We're going through the worst thing that the country's probably ever seen. And former Vice President Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee, is stuck in a makeshift studio at his home in Wilmington, Delaware. Well, what I'm trying to do is uh, become much more facile in being able to use uh, social networking here. Uh, the fact is that uh, I'm in the basement of my home. <laughs> in the basement of my home. Me and too. Actually, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So what does all this mean for a presidential campaign? I started out by asking Stephanie Cutter what would normally be happening in April of an election year. What normally would be happening is massive staffing up, fundraising, uh, preparing your state strategies uh, for the general, working to plan the convention, the vetting potential VP candidates, all of the processes that you need to go through to make sure that you are ready um, really you know, as soon as possible. There is no date upon which it starts. It just starts as soon as possible for a what will be a very hard-fought, expensive, and nasty general election. And when you're the challenger, you know, you have this pit in your stomach because you know your opponent, the incumbent president, has been planning this for a year and a half. Uh, in Trump's case, he's been planning it since the moment he was elected in 2016. So they have an arsenal ready to go. The challenger, in this case, Joe Biden, is now quickly, frantically putting the pieces together. Is it going to make it harder, not just getting the campaign team in sync, but also sort of unifying a party? We keep hearing every day about the challenges Biden still has and bringing Sanders supporters on board and younger voters on board. You know, it raises a number of challenges. One of Joe Biden's greatest strengths is his ability to relate with people. Um, and in their presence, uh, there's nothing like it. Biden has an unbelievable way to reach people, pull them in, um, and make you feel like you've been friends for decades. You know, that's hard to do over a Zoom. <laughs> and I think that's a real challenge. I think the campaign is working on it and how to make people feel it, even though it's over the Internet. It, campaigns work best when they when they gel, where it's clear you're all working for the same thing and are part of the same team. You know, it's why every night um, on the Obama campaign, there was a closing meeting. Uh, every morning, there was an opening meeting, uh, which mostly, uh, after some very short updates, was mostly about building team and building camaraderie. That's hard to do over the internet. How worried are you or should Democrats slash the Biden campaign be about the fact that it is almost impossible for him to break into uh, the sort of 24-7, not just coverage of a pandemic, but the ability for President uh, Trump to, to be out front every single night at these press conferences. I'm not on the Biden campaign and I can't speak to what they're thinking, but I can tell you what I think when I'm watching those things. The polling had shown, and and Amy, no one knows this better than you, that Trump uh, was gaining some credibility um, 
through the coronavirus. People thought that he was late in acting uh, and may have not done all the right things, but he was showing strength in getting us out of it. And people were giving him the benefit of the doubt on that strength to help us recover from the recession. So, you know, two, three weeks ago, there was concern. Um, on the Democratic side about what that's going to look like in a couple of months if Trump was um, maintaining this mantle every night. Well, those numbers have shifted, and people don't think that he's um, you know, doing what it takes, are worried about whether he's helping the states enough, are really concerned with his push to reopen everything. Um, so I'm not sure those nightly press briefings help him. Certainly, when he's attacking governors or um, criticizing um, medical personnel or uh, not showing any empathy about what's going on, that really doesn't broaden his base of voters. Um, so I think we don't know yet, but if I were on the Biden campaign, I'd continue doing what you're doing. And um, and also know that you know if this is what the campaign's gonna look like going forward, you gotta figure out how to make some news um, on those Zoom events or Skype media briefings. Um, and you're going to have to put more money behind TV, TV and digital advertising more so than ever. Matt Rhodes, who ran Mitt Romney's 2012 campaign, agrees. Resources need to be shifted to digital. The traditional grassroots field staffer is kind of going the way of the dodo bird, and they're being replaced by digital operatives that know how to build audiences online and you know, transfer message information to voters in a different way. Most voters aren't going to see a huge difference because they usually just experience these campaigns through paid media. So in April of a presidential election, what would you be doing right now? You'd be building out a general election campaign team. So if you're the Biden team, you're trying to build out a large organization and catch up with an incumbent president and what President Trump and his team have been able to develop and build across the country. And to me, that's just, oh, it sounds absolutely brutal to try to build out a campaign right now during a quarantine. So as you, you go out there and you find people, and again, you're not hiring the traditional field staffers uh, in battleground states that you know, live off of presidential campaigns every four years. You're finding more folks that are more niche in the digital space. But down the road, there's going to be a total lack of camaraderie that exists amongst the team. And that's one of the best things about being on the team. And right now, when you're going from the primary to the general, you're expanding your organization and you're trying to create that same sense of loyalty that existed on the primary team. And it's going to be really difficult how that impacts an organization down the road. Will it mean there's more leaks on bad days for the Biden team? Or maybe it'll mean no leaks because no one is able to fraternize on the, uh, on the trail and, and, you know, share info and gossip with reporters and each other. So it's just a bizarre, bizarre moment to build out a larger organization. Now, a president running for re-election always has an advantage because he has a bully pulpit and he has access to, you know, reaching out to people that's much easier than when you're a challenger. But now it's 24-7 Donald Trump and he is supplementing that with these daily press briefings. Can you tell me what you think 
they are doing for him and for his campaign? Are they helping? Are they hurting? Should he keep doing these? I think ultimately they're helping. I've had the privilege to work for an incumbent president in 2004 who was trying to get reelected. And then I had the challenge of trying to take on an incumbent president. And you can never underestimate the power of incumbency and the bully pulpit. And, you know, the president's getting graded every single day. Did he, did he win today? Did he lose today? But ultimately, the power of incumbency and the ability to go out there uh, with complete attention on him is ultimately, I think, in the end, going to help him. I would take the Rose Garden every single day of the week. And th- there's ups and downs with that, but the ups are going to far outweigh the downs, ultimately. Matt Rhodes was the campaign manager for Mitt Romney in 2012. And earlier, we heard from Stephanie Cutter, who was on both Obama campaigns and was the deputy campaign manager in 2012. As we just heard from Stephanie Cutter and Matt Rhodes, a shift from the traditional field organizing to a more digital strategy will be crucial. Last summer, long before COVID-19, we took this show on the road to Michigan. We knew the state would get a lot of attention in 2020. Donald Trump narrowly won there in 2016. Democrats have been focusing on winning the state back, and one of their strategies for doing so is Organizing Corps, a program designed to recruit and train a new generation of field organizers. That's where we met. I'm Sam Aliman. Um, I go to school at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, and I'm 22. Sam was knocking on doors in Rochester Hills, just outside of Detroit. And the plan was that he'd continue to do so through the general election in November. I caught up with Sam this week to see how things are going in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Given the current situation with COVID-19, we're kind of rerouting how we organize. Um, So now we're, you know, we're hosting like virtual town halls and digital trainings. Um, And at first, those type of things were, you know, going to be like a, I don't want to say a sideline, it was going to be equally as important, but, you know, just another thing to to offer people who might be more busy with work and just have other priorities. Uh, But now that's kind of our, our main goal. What can you do digitally that you can't in person? Like I mentioned, we did a virtual town hall with a city clerk from Rochester Hills. Um, and she was just talking about election laws and how to get people registered to vote and just that process. And afterwards, someone reached out to me and was like, you know, thank you for hosting this. Like, I don't think I would have even gone to this um, if it was an in-person event. And so, you know, there is a different obstacle with online, um, but I do think it opens up an opportunity for more people to to join and to learn these types of things. And, you know, people have more free time right now, um, unfortunately, but you know, I think we're kind of just meeting people where they are. Um, and right now that's um, on their phones and on their computers and in their email boxes. And what do you miss when you don't get to meet people in person, when you have to do it digitally? Last summer, um, we were in Royal Oak knocking on doors. And I'll be the first to say, like, I enjoy door knocking, but, you know, it's it's hot outside. You know, it can be physically exhausting. And we were door knocking from like 11 a.m. I think it was almost three or four. So it had been most of the day. And um, I went to a porch and there was just an older woman sitting on the porch and, you know, she offered me a seat and we just kind of started chit-chatting about politics and, you know, why she wanted to see Democrats elected and how important like healthcare policy and legislation is to her. And so, you know, that was a, a in-person connection that I'm not going to have the opportunity to make 
and obviously, you know, you can DM people on Facebook, but there's still something different about, you know, sitting down on someone's porch on a hot summer day um, and just chatting and making a personal connection that goes beyond a screen. Is that disappointing for you that you are not going to be able to do that? I mean, potentially, hopefully things get better and we get back to normal right. <laughs> and by this fall you're knocking on doors. But realistically, it's likely we're going to be doing the non-in-person thing for a while. I guess it's trying to find the positive in that. You know, it's a different type of reward. Um, you know, we have the possibility of reaching maybe new voters who are not, you know, maybe home all the time. Um, you know, I am going to miss like the the team setting of working in like an office because um, as of right now, everyone's working remote. Um, you know, sometimes it's nice to be like, oh, look at look at what someone just emailed me or look at this tweet. So there is like that, you know, that disappointment of just not being with the people that I was training to work with all, all summer and for this election. But it just comes with a new type of reward. Sam Aliman is a digital organizer with the DNC. While coronavirus has completely changed how candidates and strategists approach campaigning, but it's also changed the trajectory of those trying to land a job on a campaign. Karen Menon is a senior at the University of Virginia and was planning to start working on a congressional campaign right after graduation. I talked to him about how he's navigating the change in terrain. My my dad actually um, has always been involved in politics, you know, from a very early age. I'd like to say that I've been doing campaign work since the Bush campaign in 2000 because um, my dad would take me and my me and my brothers around to doors and to knock doors because you know people are a little more friendly when you have a three year old with you than than if it's just a you know, 35, 40 year old guy. So in in that way, it's just kind of always been. You know, politics has always been around the house. It's always been talked about. Um, and I, I made it to the University of Virginia just because, you know, um, I'm from Virginia. It's a great school. It's a better deal, um, you know, being in state. And, you know, you, you really get to, you know, explore academics, but also, you know, go into, you know, the creative side of things. I'm involved in music. I'm in an acapella group, but I'm also, you know, devoted to, to politics and, and doing stuff in that way. Well, and it, Sounds like you have also been involved as a student in doing political work. Yeah. So actually, in 2018, I, I was on the Denver Riggleman campaign for Congress. Mm. But now, and that was just in the capacity as, as an intern. But um, now I'm on the Tina Ramirez campaign for Congress, which is in the 7th District, which is just about an hour. I guess the closest parts of the district are about 35 minutes from Charlottesville. Um, but she's um, a Republican that's challenging a Democrat, but she's currently going for um, the nomination. So I'm on that campaign. I'm on part-time staff, um, which has been great to be able to do that while still in school. But, you know, obviously this this virus situation is, is changing that dynamic a little bit. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Were you planning on working on that campaign full time when you graduated? Um, you know, planning is as as much as you can possibly plan uh, when when you're graduating and going into a career like politics. But it was definitely an an option um, going out of college. And one one of the great things, you know, uh, there's a there's a pre-corona and then there's the post-corona timeline. My pre-corona timeline was um, the convention was set for actually this coming weekend, April 25th. Um, and we would have the had Republican, the local yes. Republican convention, mm -hmm. right, to pick the, a nominee. The district wide. Yeah. Um, the, the convention would have been on April 25th. Um, and, you know, that's probably one of the worst gatherings you could possibly think of, which is 5,000 people, generally a little older, 
gathering in an auditorium and talking for 10 hours straight. That's that's the worst thing you can think of. And they canceled it and, and they was good, good on them for canceling it. Um, but, you know, that now we don't have a date for when we're going to find a nominee. It could be as late as July. And it kind of moved from a place where I would have known if that were a door that was open for me before graduation. But now I won't know for maybe two months after graduation. And, and you know, other, other opportunities are the, are the same thing. Every campaign is delayed in some way. Um, presidential campaigns, Senate campaigns, finding the nominees, when they're going to be able to travel. It's, it's all kind of in flux now. Well, Kieran Menon, thank you so much for talking us through this. And um, good luck being at home. And I hope things work out for you. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Amy. I appreciate that. Kieran Menon is a senior at the University of Virginia studying politics. We heard from some of you who were planning to volunteer for political campaigns. This is Dave Huntsman in Peninsula, Ohio. As far as whether COVID-19 had impacted any plans to volunteer for a political campaign, I'm a forever independent who had been planning on volunteering for the local Democratic candidate for Congress. But I'm over 65 with pre-existing conditions and I don't go out now. And on top of that, I'm working from home more hours now than I even did before when I was commuting. So uh, at the moment, doing any sort of volunteering is kind of out. My name is Eric Hamill. I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I have been volunteering for a political campaign. Uh, When the lockdown started, they switched from door-to-door canvassing to remote phone canvassing, and I continue to take part in it. So it's just changed the form of the canvassing. Hasn't stopped it. We always like hearing from you. 877-8MY-TAKE is the number to call. As primary season continues, we've seen states scramble their election plans. Two weeks ago, it was Wisconsin in the spotlight, as state officials battled it out until the last minute and still forced in-person voting to take place. We'll talk a bit more about Wisconsin in a few minutes. But first, I wanted to check in on Ohio. You may remember back in March, it was Ohio that was the focus of national attention with a back-and-forth legal battle that ultimately ended with the health department director issuing an order to close all polling locations just hours before voting was to take place. Ohio moved to have an all-vote-by-mail primary on April 28th, so I called up Frank LaRose. He's the Republican Secretary of State in Ohio, and it's his job to ensure that elections run smoothly. I started out by asking what steps a voter in Ohio needs to take to get an absentee ballot. The request form is the easiest way to do that, and and we've been directing people to go to VoteOhio.gov, which is our website, where you can print that form out. If you don't have a printer, then there are also instructions right there uh, where you can make your own form. And so what that basically means is you just write a, a note to the Board of Elections, and you say, this is my name. I want the party ballot for either the Republican Party or Democratic Party or Libertarian Party, or I want an issues-only ballot, because obviously in a primary, you have to pick which one of those ballots you want to mm-hmm. vote. Uh, And then you have to put the date, uh, you have to sign it, you have to put your mailing address and that kind of thing, uh, and then an identification number. And in Ohio, that can be either your last four uh, of your social or that can be your state driver's license number. If you don't want to give us one of those, then you can include a copy, a photocopy of an acceptable form of ID, and there's a whole list there at VoteOhio.gov as well. So once we get those things from you, uh, our boards of elections will mail you the ballot. And the great thing in Ohio, you can actually track your ballot just like you would track a package you order online. And so, again, you go to 
votoohio.gov, you know what day it will arrive in your mailbox. And then once you send your ballot and you can track it right to the Board of Elections and you know that it was received and you know that on the evening of April 28th, it will be counted as long as it's postmarked by the 27th of April, or it can be dropped off at the Board of Elections in the secure drop boxes. We have 88 county boards of elections all over the state of Ohio, and we've directed all of them to have secure drop boxes available so that people can drop them off in person. But again, that has to be on Tuesday, the 28th, before 7.30 p.m., because after that, we close the polls and we tabulate the results. As you pointed out, this is something brand new for you all. You're in a crunch timetable. I assume a lot of the local officials and, as you pointed out, even in Columbus, folks are working from home. How hard has it been for you all to be able to physically get this done, to make sure that all those absentee requests are being filled, that ballots are getting sent out in time? And I'm sure you watched Wisconsin try to do this under a much more compressed timetable, but there were a lot of problems, especially just getting ballots into the hands of people who wanted them. You're right to say that this is the first time that we've ever done an all-vote-by-mail election, but it's not the first time that Ohioans have done vote-by-mail. In fact, uh, thankfully, because Ohioans have nearly a 20-year history of vote-by-mail, our boards of elections are well-prepared. They understand vote-by-mail. In even just a routine election, uh, Ohioans vote at 20 to 25 percent. Uh, by mail. And so many people are uh, comfortable with it. The boards of elections at that decentralized local level have the equipment to process it. And we've run into troubles. There were uh, there was a, a couple boards of elections last week that ran out of envelopes, for example. Well, guess what? We we got an overnight print job done. We, we got them out to them, and, and we were able to work that out. We were able to supplement their staff because, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of folks are working from home, and particularly the, those vulnerable populations uh, were, mm-hmm. were making sure to protect their safety. And so they're doing work from home, like data entry, that still needs to be done or answering phone calls for the boards of elections. But we've supplemented using federal funding, hundreds of thousands of dollars of federal funding, that we pushed out three weeks ago to the boards of elections to bring in part-time staff. And I'm happy to report that the vast majority of our boards are keeping up with that very well. Uh, They receive a request for an absentee ballot and they send a ballot out usually the same day or within 24 or 48 hours. Can you tell us what sorts of things you're going to be recommending to the legislature and the governor? Sure. Well, a couple things that I have been a longtime proponent of. In fact, some of these go back five years when I was in the state Senate, where we should make that absentee ballot request available online. Right now, you have to print a piece of paper. You have to put a wet ink signature on it and Mm -hmm. you have to snail mail it back to the to the Board of Elections. Uh, that, that just doesn't really meet expectations that most voters have. And in 2020, we can authenticate who you are using uh, various forms of identification online. And we should be able to just process those requests online and take – now, the, the ballot will still have to be mailed to you, but there's no reason why we can't do those online. I'd actually also like to see us look at something like uh, ongoing requests. If I request my November ballot, I should also be able to request one for the next election uh, a few months into the future. And, and so in that sense, it just starts a, a change where you request a ballot for each election. Uh, Also, it's time for Ohio to pay for those uh, absentee ballot returns uh, as just a normal course of of business. Now, for this primary election, our legislature authorized us to do that, and I'm thankful for that. But it's time that we just pay that postage. And then, you know, going forward, I'd like to see us, if we do have to do an all-vote-by-mail election, then we need to mail those absentee ballot requests with a postage-paid envelope to every single Ohio voter. Uh, That's, to me, if you're going to run an all-postal election, you can't require people uh, to have to procure their own stamps and print their own forms and and that kind of thing. This should be a process that's easy for Ohioans, and, and we should put voters first. 
Well, Secretary LaRose, that sounds all very reasonable. <laughs> and yet we you also know we live in very polarized and very political times. And the president himself has tweeted and talked about Republicans fighting very hard when it comes to statewide mail-in voting. He said, Democrats are clamoring for it, tremendous potential for voter fraud. And for whatever reason, it doesn't work out well for Republicans. Why do you respond to that? First of all, in Ohio, both Republicans and Democrats have been voted, have embraced vote by mail uh, for nearly two decades. Um, in Ohio, uh, we have safeguards in place to prevent the kind of concerns that the president has raised. And, and listen, that's not the case in every state. And not all vote by mail systems are created equal, right? Some uh, definitely do leave open the, the prospect uh, of fraudulent activity. And, and, and thankfully, uh, in Ohio, we have created a system over the years that, that, that takes reasonable steps to prevent that. I mean, uh, one of the things that we do in Ohio is maintain the accuracy of our voter rolls. It seems like a, a pretty straightforward idea, but deceased voters get removed from the voter rolls. Those that move out of state get removed from the voter rolls. Not every state does that uh, as well as we do here in Ohio, but uh, we also prevent so-called ballot harvesting. And I know that uh, in other states, this has been a legitimate cause for concern. In recent history in, in North Carolina, there was a case uh, in Ohio. The only person that can take your ballot to the board of elections is yourself or your postal carrier, uh, or of course a, a member of your family. But uh, for some activists to go door to door and collect up ballots in Ohio is just not permitted. And so those are just a few of the things that we do to make sure that our process is honest uh, and that all Ohioans can trust it. And if other states looked at what Ohio does as our vote by mail process, I think that uh, that they would be able to have a similarly trustworthy vote by mail process as well. So do you think these arguments basically addressing the concerns of both sides for Republicans, it's that there could be fraud for Democrats, it's that there's an access issue. Do you think that addressing both sides of that is going to to work in the legislative process in the way we have it right now? Or is your expectation that the politics are just going to be too tough to overcome this close to a presidential election? Well, listen, hope springs eternal uh, as far as I'm concerned, and reasonable people should be able to agree that uh, we won't accept fraud and we won't accept uh, voter suppression either, right? Like it, these are things that, that should be universal, that, that both Republicans and Democrats should agree on, that reasonable steps should be taken to prevent either of those. And thankfully, in my mind anyway, both are exceedingly rare. Are you expecting to see court cases involving voting access or voting rules become a significant issue in your state going forward? We know a lot of states, Wisconsin being the most prominent example of that, but so much controversy over some of these rules about voting by mail or or new rules in the light of the COVID-19 pandemic that have been brought up, um, have been now taken to court and maybe coming out throughout this election process. Especially in Ohio, litigation is unfortunately just part of our our lives in elections administration. Certainly in, in my view of recent history, it's sort of uh, become definitely a, a, a factor in the post-2000 era of elections. It seems like we want to run to the courthouse steps every time there's any change, even a minor one in elections. And right now there are major changes that are happening. You know, I've worked to try to build relationships with uh, a number of these groups. I've only served as 
Secretary of State for just over a year now. But a lot of these groups that have a history of litigation, uh, I've really built relationships with them. And uh, it doesn't mean that all that litigation goes away, certainly. And that's a tool that has to be uh, exercised from time to time. But uh, my simple ask to, to, to these groups is um, – uh, before you sue me, call me. And it's working well in Ohio in many cases. We've been able to get on the phone and work out concerns instead of having to run to the courthouse steps, so to speak. Uh, certainly, we anticipate that. We've seen cases both in federal court and in the Ohio Supreme Court just in the last few weeks. Um, and uh, we'll be ready for that. Uh, but again, people of good conscience and good faith should be able to, to work these issues out in most cases before they end up in the in the courtroom. Secretary LaRose, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And please stay safe. Thank you so much, Amy. And uh, all Ohioans, I hope you vote. And VoteOhio.gov is the place to get started. For so many Black people, the whiz feels like home. Like home. The new stage revival has Broadway buzzing. And as it gears up for a national tour, we'll consider the impact this story continues to have 50 years down the yellow brick road. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on the next Notes from America as we pay tribute to the Wiz. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. On April 7th, the state of Wisconsin held an election in the middle of a global pandemic. You may have seen the pictures, voters lined up in the rain, some wearing masks, waiting in long lines at the handful of polling stations that were still open. The danger associated with the coronavirus caused a surge in absentee ballot requests. In fact, over a million mail ballots were ultimately received in time to be counted, a record for any election in the history of Wisconsin. But we also know that many voters were unable to vote because their ballots were never delivered, Many simply gave up when they saw how daunting the absentee ballot process was. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel did an investigation of what went wrong. I spoke with Daphne Chen, an investigative reporter at the Sentinel, about that work. So um, even before the election, in the weeks leading up to the election, we were hearing a lot about people who were not getting their absentee ballots and were very worried that they were not going to get there in time. Um, and uh, that persisted up until the day of the election. And so on that day, we put out a call for anybody um, who was missing their ballot or had gotten their ballot late um, to tell us what happened. And within a week, we got more than 600 responses to this online survey. Um, and about half of those people described in detail um, the process and the multiple attempts they made to get their ballots. Um, and so we, we dug into that and found a very surprising range and breadth of issues that, um, you know, point to issues with the post office, point to issues at overwhelmed clerk's offices, um, maybe even point to issues with um, the website itself. Um, and it's concerning because I think uh, many of these people were frustrated, even heartbroken that they did not get their ballots and then had to go make the choice of whether to risk their health and go vote in person. Um, and of course, as the coronavirus pandemic continues to play a role probably into fall um, with more elections coming up, it's going to be a big deal for Wisconsin to get this right the next time. Absolutely, because we're now talking about the possibility of this pandemic continuing into the fall and states having to go potentially to all vote by mail. Mm -hmm. Talk to us about all the different pieces involved in this. Obviously, 
this was in a very compressed time frame, um, this moving to to vote by mail. But if you have to point to like the weakest chains in this link, what were they? Were they the clerks? Was it the postal service? Was it overwhelmed staff? Was it like just was it confusion or was it um, that people actually were just not doing the jobs they were supposed to be doing? Mm hmm. Uh, we really think it was a little bit of everything. Um, right now, the post office is investigating um, a large amount of ballots in late March that did not appear to get to their recipients. And election officials have said, we really believe that was a post office issue. Um, and but this is I- the ballots themselves. Like, were they ballots to be filled out or there are ballots that had been filled out that never made it to... It was- it, it was ballots that never got to the people who requested them. Got it. And so they did not have a chance to fill them out. Okay. Um, you know, and so, and so, you know, the election officials we talked to said, we really believe that's the majority of issues. So it's hard to know, but we heard from a lot of people, a lot of people, um, you know, dozens who said they applied, but their application was never found in the system after a week. Um, People who said that they went to go apply, but their voter registration could not be found in the system. And, um, you know, they have been registered since the 80s, tried every single version of their name that they could think of. Um, We had uh, people, a lot of college students who said, that ballot um, arrived at my old registered address or my dorm where I'm no longer living because school is closed. Um, and so these point to issues in the system of possibly data entry. Um, Wisconsin has a very decentralized, fairly complicated um, system where the administration of the election is separated out to about uh, 1,800 different clerks, municipal clerks around the state. Um, and they follow uh, multiple steps in the process uh, of opening applications, checking voter ID, entering this data manually into a separate system, sometimes having to pull in other clerks, county clerks, to get access to that system. So there's a lot of steps along the way where things could go wrong. Um, and it's a system that you know wasn't designed for vote by mail. Uh, but unfortunately, that's that's what the reality is right now. That's right. Were there certain parts of the state that did better or worse than others? Obviously, we had a lot of focus on Milwaukee nationally, and you're based mm-hmm. in Milwaukee. But what about other parts of the state? Definitely the majority of people who wrote in were from Milwaukee. Um, and I don't know if we saw a lot of difference in terms of geography. Um, we got responses from people from over a hundred different cities, towns, villages. So it seemed pretty widespread. The next question, of course, is what does this tell us about November and the ability for Wisconsin to run, if they had to, a full-on vote-by-mail election? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, The election experts that we spoke to said that, you know, the few states that do do pretty much fully vote by mail, it took them years to get to that point mm-hmm. and to to get those systems up and working properly. 
you know, they, everybody has said if Wisconsin is headed that way and if coronavirus continues to play out this way, it's going to be very, very, very tight to um, make all these changes in time. I think, you know, election officials that we have spoken to have really been focused on the post office and, and issues with mailing there, which are definitely very serious. But in talking to all of these people who wrote in, it does seem like there are issues with the website. It does seem like there are um, problems at the clerk's offices being unequipped to handle this surge in absentee ballot applications. And all of that needs to be figured out um, for the benefit of people who, you know, they say that they they lost their voice. I mean, there are people who voted in every single election, even the little ones, for years and years and years who said, this year I couldn't go to the polls. Well, Daphne Chen, I really appreciate you taking the time and walking us through this. I am sure we will be talking to you a lot in these coming months. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This week, another installment of our check-ins with mayors about how they're governing in the midst of a pandemic. I spoke with Mayor Lenny Curry of Jacksonville, Florida. Pictures featuring crowds of people moving around on newly opened beaches in his city made national news last weekend. But first, I started off by asking him how his constituents are holding up. Uh, They're tired uh, and restless, uh, which is to be expected. But they have uh, really uh, embraced social distancing a lot of people in masks. If you see them out in grocery stores, uh, we got we got ahead of this uh, pretty early. I uh, before I even did uh, safer at home orders and a number of other executive orders, I shut down uh, concert venues, all city venues where you'd have large crowds, compact crowds before most cities in Florida. And so we embraced it early. Uh, our positive rates are between five around right around five percent, which is lower than most metropolitan areas in the state. It seems as though Southern Florida has been hit worse by the coronavirus pandemic. Are you worried at all that an increase in cases makes its way up north to where Jacksonville's located? You know, even as we contemplate getting back to some level of work, uh, we are going to continue to stress uh, social distancing, masks, wearing masks when you're in public, working from home when you can. All those are under executive order right now. There'll come a time when they're not. But we'll, we will continue to stress those things and, and, and possibly even executive order some of them. What does that mean to executive order some of them? So, for example, before I did a safer at home order, which meant everybody's home except for essential businesses, I put out an executive order that said if your employees can work from home, if they can perform their job duties, can work from home, it's mandated that you allow them to work from home. So that's where we started. And uh, so, you know, as we contemplate going back to some level of work, we'll have to contemplate what, when we get non-essential people back to work, what kind of restrictions need to remain in place to keep, uh, to keep our positive rates down. Because the virus is with us. It's not, it's not leaving anytime soon, based on what all the health experts say. Uh, there's no vaccine right now. Living in perpetual lockdown is not sustainable economically or from a mental health perspective or other other health risks. So we've got to figure out how to live with this and mitigate the risk. And you had originally closed the beaches uh, on March 20th, opened them up this past weekend for um, really just essential activities, walking, biking, hiking. 
talk us through your decision for reopening these beaches. Yeah. So through all the whole stay at home, safer at home orders, uh, I've encouraged people to get outside in their neighborhoods, walk their dogs, jog, just get, you know, just get out in the air. Um, but if you see your neighbors, if you see people you don't know, keep your distance, don't stop, don't get in their space. And so people have been doing that for weeks. If you go down to our beaches, neighborhoods, uh, there's a street called First Street, which is one block off the beach where people were walking and biking. And that at times could become compact. So opening the beaches to restricted activities and restricted hours opened up a bunch of wide space for people to move around. It's, 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 I've seen the recent photos. It's working. People are far apart. They're not congregating. Um, they're, they're practicing what we've asked them to. So when those pictures started coming out over the weekend and Jacksonville was trending on Twitter and other social media for these pictures that looked like people were in these big clumps, did people really overdo it that first weekend and maybe not do the social distancing? Well, a lot of people got, as soon as it opened, it had been, you know, weeks, a lot of people wanted to get out on the beach that evening. So certainly a lot of people went. I wasn't out there when it opened, but the, the there's mayors of those beaches communities as well. They were out there. Police and fire were out there. Other media outlets were out there. I'm not going to debate camera angles, but I'm told by and large, people were in fact six feet apart and they weren't engaging with other folks. And so it was a, uh, that was a, a moment in time that's not happening now. Uh, but everything that I've been told and seen is that they practiced behaviors that we'd asked them to practice. And look, you've got, you've got, uh, you know, I, mean, I believe Central Park's open right now. So wide open spaces, if people practice and behave appropriately, is, is, is health, are healthy. The other thing we're talking to mayors about is the impact that this pandemic is having on your city finances and what it's going to mean as you're trying to put together a budget. I know you passed a budget at the end or the fall of of last year uh, that was something over a billion dollars. What is next year going to look like? It's going to be a very difficult budget. Uh, it's going to we're going to have to reevaluate all of our priorities. Um, and my focus will be uh, relief to our citizens, relief to our businesses, jobs and getting people back to work, looking at infrastructure projects that we had maybe scheduled for out years and figuring out what we can move up into current years. Uh, So it's going to be all about our people. You also sit on a reopening committee. I, I don't know what the official title is, but in Florida with Governor DeSantis, how are you putting together recommendations for reopening the state? Well, I have where my team is, uh, you know, we're follow, we've looked at the, the phases that the White House has put out and the, the phases one, two and beyond are there, there's some specificity to it, but it also gives you some room to, room to tailor it to your community. But we're going to try to follow those guidelines and uh, and then tailor it to our community and share those best practices or ideas, if you will, with the committee. Uh, for example, our beach restrictions are ours. And what you can do on the beaches were discussed on a call yesterday, and that committee is talking about maybe that being the uh, the model for the state of Florida. You know, limited hours, six to eleven, five to eight, and no sunbathing, no coolers, n- no being stationary. You got to keep moving, and you got to practice social distancing. So that's an example. 
Well, Mayor Curry, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, and I really wish you and your city the best of luck. Thank you. Lenny Curry is the mayor of Jacksonville, Florida. Here's one more thing for me today. One of the most immediate repercussions of the COVID-19 pandemic on our politics is its impact on who votes and how they vote. It's one thing to be voting in a time of great change and tumult. It's quite another thing when the act of voting itself may be a risk to your health and safety. The reality, as we heard from Wisconsin, is that the election system in that state, from the Postal Service to local election offices, isn't ready for an all-vote-by-mail election in November. And an acrimonious relationship between the state's Democratic governor and the GOP-led legislature makes it hard to believe that they're going to be able to agree on ways to fix it in time for the fall. It's also going to take campaigns and voters' time to adjust to a world of virtual voting as well. Most states don't cover the cost of postage, and plenty of voters are rightfully worried that a vote cast at a mailbox may not actually make its way to where it needs to go. Campaigns that were planning on sending a bunch of staff door-to-door this summer are now going to have to invest in turning those staffers into digital organizers who will be chasing down absentee ballots. Overall, it means that assumptions we've made about who turns out to vote and how they'll be voting needs to be reassessed constantly. In other words, what has already been a crazy and unprecedented election cycle is going to get even more uncertain. That's all for us today. I wanted to give a big shout out to the people who make this show every week. Our senior producer is Amber Hall. Patricia Jacob is our associate producer. Polly Arungu is our digital editor. David Gable is our executive assistant. Our executive producer is Lee Hill. And a very big thank you to those coming into the studio to allow this show to get on the air. That's Jay Cowett and Debbie Daughtry. Remember, you can always find us on Facebook. Leave us a comment there. Also, if you missed anything or want to listen back again, check out our podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And leave us a rating while you're there. And of course, you can still call anytime at 877-8-MY-TAKE or send us a tweet. I'm at Amy E. Walter. The show is at The Takeaway. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>